Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing? You having trouble falling asleep, getting to sleep? Well, welcome. I hope, I believe, you are in the right place. This is Sleep With Me. We're the podcast that's here to put you to sleep. We do it. Tonight's Game of Thrones. We do it with a Game of Thrones episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. We're going to do the rest. What, may I ask, is the rest? Well, you probably, uh, could you ask it with slightly less attitude? What, 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 man? I, I don't think I can. Oh. Uh, what? May I ask what, what is the rest? Uh, rephrasing it is a uh, much less attitude. Uh, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to create a safe place where you can set aside whatever's running through your brain, racing thoughts, thinking, you know, thinking, overthinking, underthinking, constant thinking, chattering, all sorts. You know, we are like an infomercial in that sense, but I don't have the time to list all of it. But whatever's running through your brain has got you tossing and turning. I'm going to distract you from that. The way I'm going to distract you from that is I'm going to run through this episode of Game of Thrones I'm going to talk about it. It's probably going to take a while, and but you you, you just listen. And uh, if you like Game of Thrones or you like listening to a strange person, that a friendly, friendly strange person talk about Game of Thrones, just listen. And, you know, give me about uh, 40, I don't know, let's say 40, 43% of your attention. The rest of it just, you know, drift away into dreamland. I'll keep talking. I'm going to run through it scene by scene. I'll probably do some paraphrasing. That'll be inaccurate. I will probably mispronunciate multiple names. I will swoon. I will over-exaggerate uh, how much I will. I, well, no, I, will uh, I will add superfluous praise to Game of Thrones so that'd be the episode discussion. After that, I'm gonna like do stuff like, uh, what, onion bag. Why do they call soccer nets the old onion bag? That guy says uh, used to say it a lot. First, during the first United States soccer, uh, big, big uh, rebirth of soccer in the U.S. That didn't happen. Oh, the old onion bag. He hit it in the old onion bag. He'd say. And then that never materialized, that soccer boom. And then this did this soccer boom materialize or not? I don't have the uh, statistics in front of me. So that's what the podcast, that'll be the uh, um, second third of the podcast. First third will be me talking about the show. Second third will be me talking about stuff like that. Somehow it'll be related to Game of Thrones. Uh, perilously related, you know, I wouldn't walk under it if it was a rope holding it up. And then I'll finish it out with, like, uh, a visit from Sir Pounce uh, and Tommen, characters familiar to Game of Thrones listeners, but, you know, familiar. They're, they're fictional storytellers that come by, just like people that stop by your local library say, hey, you look like uh, um, uh, what I would imagine a man that was being uh, Edgar Allan Poe for Halloween would look like. And you you say you're Edgar Allan Poe, but I know you're not. And then I'll pray to the old gods and, well, to my gods, which are, you know, I call them the old gods and the new because those are words we use in the English language all the time. This is not fan fiction at all. 
or, you know, so that's it. That's the show. I hope it helps you fall asleep. I know if this is your first time here, it sounds strange. If you're utterly opposed to Game of Thrones, we have other episodes Tuesdays and Thursdays. But I can tell you many a skeptic, non-Game of Thrones skeptic, has been put to sleep by this stuff. So give it a shot. I hope it helps you sleep. The reason I started this podcast is because, well, the reason I kept going with this podcast is people are like, hey, this this works for me. The reason I started is because many reasons, but I'll give you one that I haven't shared in a while. Is that like when you can't sleep and then you start telling people, hey, I can't sleep. You get a crap load of useful. You get a crap load of weird looks and useless information. Oh, have you tried uh, Vicks Vapor Rub on your eyeballs? Because that's what my mother used. You can't sleep. Have you tried worrying less? Ha- have you Have you tried breathing at night? Have you tried that? Have you tried breathing at night? Have you tried uh, scented candles? Uh, Oh, you can't sleep. That's, that sounds terrible. Anyway, did I tell you about my new bicycle I got? It's carbon framed. Uh, oh, you can't sleep. Have you tried um, apple cores? No, no, you don't eat them. You, you fill your socks with apple cores, and you put your feet feet in the socks. And this, I don't know. It's old. It's I, I guess there's a. Uh, I was reading on this accumulation of toxins. And the apple cores, you know, sucks out the toxins, which uh, upset your sleep. But I heard it. I heard it on a, on a, I don't know where I heard it. I think it was on a bus full of lunatics because that's the kind of advice you get is uh, what a bus full of lunatics would give you. And I, I got tired of that. And I said, well, I'm a lunatic. I ride a bus, but I don't actually have even actionable advice. But what I do have is a... Um, Per, per, some word that starts with perchance, but it's not that word. Penchant for telling stories that have pointless asides, meandering, um, uh, meanders, meandering turns that, uh, and, and explorations of, uh, thought experiments that should have never been conducted, that the funding was pulled years ago. And then they, we tried to get NEA funding for these thought experiments, and they were like, that's too weird for us. So that's the podcast in a nutshell. We're here to put you to sleep. I hope it helps. Uh, I can't guarantee it, but I hope it does. We're on the web, www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones episodes are at sleepwithmepodcast.com slash drones. You can email me, feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can get me on Twitter at Dearest Scooter, on Facebook um, I believe I got something on Pinterest. I haven't been on there in a while, but I'm thinking about getting back on there and pinning some shit, some boards, pinning some boards, motherfuckers, uh, because they actually have great infographics on there about sleep. I think I've already pinned them all, but, you know, worth a check. Uh, I'll have sleep-related articles up on hopefully Facebook, Twitter, maybe Pinterest. I uh, Did I say Pinterest or did I call it something else the first time? I don't know. Uh, I also have bloopers that should be on Facebook and Twitter. Terribly, terribly uh, humiliating stuff. If you, um, I don't know, if you thought I was odd, just wait because this is like before when I'm warming up. Like I'm like, hey, let's get this the odd machine warmed up. So that's the, that's that. Feel free to get a hold of me. You can also, did I say email me? Feedback at sleepingpodcast.com. You can post on the website. I'd love to hear from you. I heard some great stories this past week that um, 
I'm going to share in the uh, thank yous. But I'm glad you're here, all right? And I do do hope uh, we, we get you to sleep here, all right? Thanks for being here. It's time, it's time for a thank yous, gratitude. Uh, thanks for Chris Posty, Poster Sin, who does our music. Podcast, it sounds like an earful. Sounds like an earful.com. Scotty and Jennifer do our iconic artwork. Lord and Lady rule over the podcast with a fist of uh, gilded steel, possibly, well, maybe. Uh, buckler, they have bucklers, they have gauntlets, and that's just in their bedroom, uh, but home. Um, Defrenestrator stays out of other people's bedrooms, but he throws people out windows if necessary. Prefers royalty or another wrestler who may have put some sort of... Uh, um, uh, what do you call it? Hexon poor the defrenestrator Nick Van Core. So give him a shout out if you can. My God, so I want to thank uh, want to thank a lot of people that support this show. Sue F says uh, on uh, iTunes we're magical fairy sleeping dust or magical sleeping fairy dust. Uh, magical sleeping fairy dust. Is that, uh, thank you. Uh, it says we beat ambient alcohol, Advil PM, white noise, meditation, melatonin, no caffeine, five-mile hikes. Thank you. I uh, I hate hiking. No, I don't. I don't. I, I hate it, you know. I just said that was just a joke. I don't hate hiking. In fact, I uh, enjoy, enjoy it sometimes. Um, I want to thank uh, new listeners or people I just heard from recently, Ramu, Ram, Ramu. Nameless Hipster Girl, Kim L, Grizz Chick, Nurse Kayla, Nurse Kayla, Erica D, the defrenestrator who I just said is not feeling so hot, Shebby, that's with two Bs, Grant, Chris S, Joel, Nick C, Benjamin D, Jacques A, Nicole. I heard from people on Twitter, Facebook, email. Thank you all so much. God, thank you for uh the support and i want to i want to just take a moment gods to uh you know let you know that anybody out there that feels like they don't have some support who does feel all alone i mean this podcast is here to try to help you fall asleep i can't do but please if you if you guys just get everybody the message if they need some help with something especially if they're down or they're struggling with with uh some some something in their lives, uh, you know, please let them know someone's there. And if you're listening and you can be there for somebody that's going through a hard time. So, you know, just, uh, keep, keep an eye on everybody. Let, let someone know you're there for them. You don't even have to, I mean, if it's not have to be sleep related. All right. Uh, thank you guys. And let's get on with the podcast and just keep an eye, you know, God's keep an eye on families that have lost people recently, people that love people that are gone and and that kind of stuff too. You know, Barky, you know, throw some shade, you know, uh, uh, good, the good kind of shade. Cause I think throwing shade is a bad thing, but you know, throw some positive shade on stuff, please. Thank you. All right, everybody. We're talking tonight about episode season three, episode three. Walk of Punishment, and uh, it's a good, great episode. I can't believe we're already at episode three. Seven episodes left. 
I don't know how many, I think April, I forgot the date, but I think, you know, seven or eight weeks, six, seven, eight weeks, we will be sitting on a new Game of Thrones episode. Uh, I can't wait. But so this episode opens with a, a shot of uh, water, black, almost water, it's almost black. And then coming across the screen is this, uh, coming across the screen is like the best way is canoe coffin, I'd say. It's a coffin with a, cat's father in it and uh it's like a canoe coffin so and then you got uh you're like okay they're in the riverlands i think there might even be a shot of the riverlands there a nice shot of it a couple maybe a couple shots and then you got a cat's nephew i think uh edmure edmure tully uh taking some shots with the arrow to ignite the coffin canoe and he's like, you know, he can't pull it off. So his uncle, I think, rips it. He says, I'll do it. Uh, one thing I, I did not look up, but there's jars all around the body. I don't know if uh, they were to ignite it or they were some sort of uh, thing to help his journey to the underworld. I don't know. That, that's an interesting question that I wish I answered. And the arrow, it was pretty far and a good shot. Then uh, they, they uh, Ed Muir and Rob and... Uh, another guy talking about this disaster at the Battle of the Stone Mill and how Edmir messed up. And he took, he's like, I took the fight to the mountain. And then Rob's like, well, all you got is a mill and a couple of little Lannister kids, William and Martin Lannister. And you really get the sense that Rob is really trying to lead here. But you're like, well, this guy wasn't even listening to you. And you're like, oh no! And he gets really uh, agitated, and, and uh, most, almost the most aggressive, maybe the most aggressive we've ever seen, Rob. And and then the next scene is one of our, um, I don't know, classic, I'd say, comedy scenes in the history of Game of Thrones. Another rewatchable moment again. I mean, I, I probably watched it three times the first uh, two or three minutes of it. So do yourself a favor. I don't have the time code here, but it's a small council meeting. Small council's been relocated to get a shot of uh, Maester, uh, Baelish, and uh, and Varys looking like uh, like the Three Stooges a little bit. And then you have Baelish like trying to sit right next to right next to Tywin, who's in this room. He's like, yeah, the dominant force, and he he's the one I cut to the front. Suckers. And then Cersei rolls in. She surveys the scene. She says, mm, no. And she takes a chair, moves it, sits right next to her father. And then Tyrion's like, hmm, yeah, well, that was a move. Let's see if I could top my sister's move. And he drags a chair. It screeches beautifully, beautifully. And he puts it at the head of the table, the other head of the table. And I don't, I don't even know if there is any dialogue in there. But talk about like if you had like if you had a Martian. Uh, this is how brilliant Game of Thrones is. If you had a Martian, or well, maybe a human that had been on Mars, like say Elon Musk gets a time machine. Some of the people he hired, we bring one back. He says, "What? Are you, what's this Game of Thrones? What's narrative? Well, let me sit you down and just show you this one scene, and you tell me the relationship status. Of all these people, they could watch this scene. I guarantee they could tell you." Uh, almost they could they could figure out about 60% of what's going on with this family and these people. 
and no words were even spoken. Then the meeting t- kicks off, and they're talking about Roos Bolton has hair and all, and Tywin's like, yeah, who cares? He says, uh, listen, Baelish, head out for the Eyrie. I want you to marry this uh, cat's sister and uh, Lady Aaron, you know, and then, you know, make an alliance with us with all her soldiers. We'll see what Rob does about that. And somebody says something, and Baelish has a nice line, titles, do braid titles or something like that, really nice. And then they're like, well, what are we going to do about this? And then Tyrion's like, Tyrion's like well, we, we need Baelish. He's the master at coin. And Tywin says, listen, kid, you're in charge now. Uh, you're master of coin. He's like, I don't know anything about it. And then we cut to a scene with these soldiers singing a song called The Bear and the Maiden Fair, and they're they're marching. And we see it's the people that captured Jamie and Brienne, and Jamie and Brienne are tied up on a horse, and Jamie's trying to tell Brienne how to handle things when they get back to the camp to protect herself. And at first he's trying to boss her, and she's like, listen, man, I can deal with, uh, you know, I can deal with, fight my own battles, thank you. And he tries a little bit of a softer hand. And he's trying to be protective, but, you know, we're, we're still like, who is this Jamie? And I think this is another thing, again, I hate to be a fanboy, but this is a brilliant show, is that... um when you when this is because this is already in context for us because we know thing what Jamie's capable of from seeing him in the first season, and then in the second season what he even more of what he's capable of especially when he's like playing the soft hand, and then doing you know terrible acts selfish acts to protect himself. So that scene with his cousin or, or that other Lannister. In the in Rob's camp where he escaped, uh, really it pays off here because at least it did for me because I was like I don't think I trust this guy. Is he trying to protect Brienne or not? Then we go to the Brotherhood. They're at an inn. Arya's there with her friends, and she's like, "What, what am I? Am I a prisoner?" They're like, "Oh no, you're our guest. Just eat up, and then you can leave whenever you want." And she's like, great, we're going to eat and go. And then they roll in with the hound. They've captured the hound. Oh, no, that already passed. Uh, Arya's is, is, uh, no, I got, she's like, no, you're a guest. You got to stay with us. We're going to keep you safe. And then they get ready to leave the inn and hot pie. They're like, yeah, he's like, I'm going to stay. They love my brown bread here. They said it's the best they've ever had. And, you know, they said they, we didn't pay for any food, so they're going to keep me in exchange. But I made just nice little wolf bread. Uh, Ari, Ari, so enjoy your wolf bread. And she says, well, be safe. And he says, don't get stabbed. And she, Ari says, you don't burn your fingers. Oh, much funnier when she said it in context. And then goodbye. And then we have another scene with Kat, Caitlin Tully, looking out a window. At the Riverlands, beautiful, another beautiful shot. And then her uncle's there, Blackfish. They're joking about his nickname. Talk, she talks about seeing her father off to battles and staring out the window every day, waiting for him to come back. And he always used to say, wait for me, little cat, wait for me. And then she cries because she's like, well, Brandon and Rick and we're waiting for me. And, you know, I really let them down. Then we have a funny little scene. Talissa's treating these Lannister boys that have been captured. And they're like, is Rob really part wolf? And she's like, well, you know, don't worry. He doesn't He doesn't pick on little boys. He only picks on soldiers. So you guys got nothing to worry about. 
But I also wonder about this scene. Like, are they setting, or do we have these Lannister boys? Should we be expecting something from them coming up or not? I don't know. Uh, interesting little scene. Then we're up in the north. There's mance, there's snow, there's wind. There's uh, heads of horses and a symbol. And Mance says, always the artists, because that's like a some sort of a kind of sunfire type symbol. And Mance is like, okay, it's time to make our move. Tormund, you and you could climb, go climb the wall. Take this guy John with you. If he, you know, if he messes with you, toss him off the wall. And then we have a uh, the crows returning to Craster's keep. And Sam sees a uh, ghost, the wolf. He's like, hey, ghost, is that you? And the wolf just dash dashes off. Craster says, what do we have here, some frozen crows? And they say, well, can we talk inside? He's like, I don't know, can't, should I let you inside? And this was another little important scene for me because uh, Craster starts really abusing Sam, making fun of him, calling him piggy. I don't know if they had access to Lord of the Flies somehow. This is the second time. Or if it's just, you know, weight thing, I don't know. Um but uh, the thing is, Mormont takes it, and I was like, oh, I don't know if this is my kind of leader. Again, just like Jon Snow had said in the past, like, uh, he's not sticking up for Sam, and you, you're you our leader? So I don't know. After that, we have this uh, hilarious scene, well, uh, sad and hilarious, of Stannis begging the Red Woman not to leave. She's like, I got a mission I got to go on. And Stannis is all worried he's getting left by his lover. And he, he's really possessive, and he's like, where, where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving me? I thought I was your main man. And she she says, I don't know where I'm going. I'm going on a mission for my God. And then you get a sense that Stannis is almost enamored by not only her, but her black magic. He's like, well, let's make another, uh, you know, demon seed. And she's like, you can't handle it right now. She says, first there must be sacrifices. The Lord of Light demands it. And she says, your fires are burning low. There's other uh, people with royal blood we can get a hold of. And she's like, don't worry, my little Stanny Poo. I'll be back. Tr- you know, trust me. You're, you're, you know, you've already turned to the evil side. So your soul is lost. She doesn't say that. Just that's my opinion. We get a bit sad for Stannis, maybe. I don't know. Then Sir Barristan is arguing with the Khaleesi. He's like, listen, man, we, let's leave without these slave soldiers. This is wrong. I agree with you. This is no way to conduct business. And then Mormons on the other side is like, what is wrong? What, you know, this is a, I think this is a gray area. And he says, there's a beast in every man, and it stirs when you put a sword in his hand. And he says, like, soldiers are capable of all these other atrocities at war. These guys won't do any atrocities. They're like robots. I mean, they don't know about robots, but that's basically what he's saying. And then we have the uh, uh, negotiation scene with my little interpreter, Boo, and Master Krasny. Uh, and it's uh, both funny and, and uh, irritating because he's such a scumbag. And they're going back and forth. And Khaleesi's like, I'm going to get what I want. He's like, what do you got to give me? I'm in, I'm in the position of power. She's like, oh, yeah. I got dragons. I'll give you one. He says two. She says one. And then Jorah and Barristan flip out. And Khaleesi's like, gives him a look. 
And then she says, you know, well, that's the deal's done. Give me, you know, everyone and, and this lovely interpreter. And then she takes Jorah and Barris and says, she says, don't ever, you know, I'm, I'm the one in charge, not you two. You advise me. So uh, don't ever, you know, question me in front of anyone again. And they're, they're kowtowing a little bit. And then uh, I can't say uh, Melisandre and Mel- I can't do the uh, interpreter's name because Melisandre is the red woman. But anyway, they are, she, her and Khaleesi are talking and Khaleesi's like, yeah, let's get to know each other. And they talk about war and everything. And then uh, we find out what Valar Morghulis means. Because she says Valar Morghulis. And Khaleesi says, yes, all men must die. Uh, all men, not not women. She says, but we are not men. Uh, then we're at Baelish's uh, joint of business with uh, Bran, Podrick, Tyrion, Baelish, and Roz is flirting with Podrick. They're taking the royal ledgers that Baelish had hidden. And then there's like the a token joke where uh, Tyrion says, any advice for me? Baelish says, keep a low profile. And Tyrion says, well, you, I'd be a rich man if I had a piece of gold for every time I heard that joke. And Baelish says, you are a very rich man. Anyway, then, then it gets to like a, a Podrick. They, they deal with Baelish and they're like, hey, Podrick, we got a reward for you. You know, we're going to let you lose your virginity with some of these lovely women here. And then uh, they're back at the office, Bron and Tyrion. And Tyrion's like, I need your help with this accounting. And Bron's like, I don't know anything about accounting. And he's like, well, this is all about loaning money and borrowing money. And he's like, I don't, it's such a pure, great scene because Bron's like, I don't borrow money. I'm a sellsword. I've never, you didn't have to explain it to me. And Tyrion's like, explains to him about taking money and interest. And he's like, well, what happens if you don't pay it? And Tyrion says, people come to get the money. And he's like, yeah, but you owe most of your money to the Lannisters. And he's like, well, we also owe uh, tens of millions, they say. And he says, we also owe tens of millions to the Iron Bank. If we don't pay them, they'll fund our enemies. And then Podrick comes back from his uh, uh, sex session. And he's all, uh, you know, they're like, wow, you're in a good mood. That took a while. And then they, it's a little bit funny. And then uh, he's like, yeah, they wouldn't take my money. And they're like, what do you mean they wouldn't? He's like, yeah, they said I don't have to pay. And they're like trying to curry favor. And they're like, no, it wasn't about currying favor. And then they, it's just hilarious. They get the wine. It's like, uh, and Tyrion says, uh, details. We're going to need copious details, Podrick. Then we get a shot of these rolling hills and a white horse galloping with a man on the back, and we realize the man's Tyrion, uh, and we realize the man's uh, Theon, and he's riding to his, on his escape trip. And all of a sudden, these guys chase him. They end up catching him, and then after they catch him, they get taken out by this uh, that guy that looks a little bit. I don't know if I said it last time, but he does look a bit, a little bit like uh, uh, what's that Hobbit? Um, not Sam, not uh, the main Hobbit. Uh, I mean, he looks a bit like Frodo from the waist up or Elijah Wood, I guess, a little bit maybe. But he takes him out and he seems to save, uh, he seems to be there to save Theon again. He says, uh, Some, I saved you, you're a long way from home and winter's coming. Then we have Brienne and Jamie and the soldiers are starting to mess around with Brienne. And Brienne tries to fight, and they start to abuse her. It's seeming like they're going to abuse her. And Jamie actually looks concerned here, and you're like, wait, maybe he is 
not that bad a guy. And he starts to spin this tale. He's like, you know who that is? That's Brianna Tarth. Her dad's a gem master. Who's got, you know, the Isle of Tarth is the uh, Emerald Sapphire Isle. Control all the sapphires. And, you know, as long as his daughter's in one piece with her uh, dignity and chastity intact, you know, he'll probably pay you a pretty penny. He says she needs to be unbesmirched. And the other guy, he says, unbesmirched? What the hell does that mean? I, I'm not a learned man. And he says, not defiled. And then Jamie talks a little bit briefly about being forced to learn to read by his dad, even though he, he was troubled by it and, and despised it, uh, learning fancy words, as the other guy says. And then Jamie's like, you know, we, we, we'll pay you to let us out, you know, we'll, we'll let us go. And the guy seems like, okay, let's see. I mean, I, yeah, I kind of like you. And then the, this guy, who I talked about, he kind of looks a little bit like the one of the, the bad guy on Prince's Bride, is who he reminds me of. He says, "Oh yeah, you're gonna get, have your father get you out of trouble again. You're nothing without your daddy." And then he punishes Jamie pretty severely. And then the, we go to the credits, and then there's another version of Bear and the Maiden Fair, like a kind of. Uh, a nice version, you should check it out. I'll try to post it in the Spotify playlist. I've been lax about that, but um, I think it's by the, uh, oh boy, and and I'll talk and I'll talk more about it in the, uh, in the episode. I mean, yeah, in this episode of Game of Thrones, not the Game of Thrones episode. All right, so what are we going to talk about this? We're going to talk about archery a little bit more about uh, uh how far can an arrow go. We'll briefly cover uh, Battle of Stone Mill, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, uh, Tully's. We're going to cover some flash freezing. We're going to dig into that. We're going to talk about Black Magic Woman. We'll also cover those harpies that appeared uh, in the Empire that brought those up. We're going to talk about Miranese Knot. That'll be interesting. And we'll hear from uh, Tom and Sir Pounce and have our prayers, all right? Uh, so one thing I thought about this episode was uh, when the, at the beginning, when uh, the blackfish shoots the arrow to uh, ignite the uh, coffin canoe. Yeah, how about we be like, uh, hey, you want to go on a coffin canoe ride? Is it an empty coffin canoe or a full one? Because is that harder to... Well, technically, it's not a canoe because it's a flat bottom, you know, because a person can't keep their balance. That's another question I didn't investigate. How is a passed away dead body, is that balanced or does it become unbalanced? Interesting question, I guess. Well, morbid. Uh, so, but I headed over to Archery Talk, which is a a forum that proclaims archers helping archers. How far can an arrow travels the thread? Uh, the person... Goblins, goblism, asked, uh, how far can an arrow travel, traveling 300 feet per second? Would it make it past 300 yards? Uh, one guy said, uh, I'd guess, depending on elevation. Another one said I was bored. I put a fire knock on it, and my bow was shooting 280 feet per second. It went four or 500 yards. Another guy said he shot it at night 400, 500 yards, called a redneck fireworks. Another person says, well, I need more details. What are the angle? 
That's the biggest question. I'll tell you how long it'll be in the air. If it stays in there for four seconds, it would go 1,200 feet. Uh, divided by three, that's 400 yards. Uh, this guy says some bows can shoot three-quarters of a mile. Kids' bows can shoot past 500 yards. Uh, this guy says yes, but they will be slowing down dramatically at an angle. Uh, that, you know, when they'll slow down. Uh, then a guy says, uh, someone that knew a lot about physics commented on another forum once. No link, though. He, this guy thinks the optimum angle is 44 degrees and the optimum speed was 270 feet per second. And then this guy d- disagrees. He says, optimum speed, all caps, with four question marks. And he says, there's definitely an optimum angle to achieve max distance, as, but as for speed, dot, 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 space, the optimum speed would be A-F-A-P, as fast as possible. Uh, and then somebody else goes on to say, optimum speed with a heavy enough arrow. Take a nano. I don't even know what any of that means. But anyway, uh, much like our question about how much can you can fold paper, we just turn to a school child to answer this question. How about that? By school, bo- school child, I mean a school child over in the U.K., Oh, boy. Uh, Schoolboy in the U.K. over at DailyMail.com. This, ar- this article is by Joe Riley uh, from the 20th of August, 2010. Robin Hood Schoolboy breaks world archery record after firing arrow 500 meters. Quoting from the article. A schoolboy who dreamed of being Robin Hood has smashed a world-long distance record in flight archery after firing an arrow the length of five football pitches. Zach Crawford, who was just 14, shot an arrow nearly 500 meters, an incredible 150 meters further than the previous record. Wow. The teenager was competing in the senior under-35-pound class using a recursive bow at the Northern County County's Flight Championship. He also broke records in the junior recursive and junior compound categories at the RAF Church Fenton in Yorkshire. Zach, who started the sport when he was just six, says he was over the moon at winning the hat trick of world records. I've been practicing really hard, and I certainly didn't expect to come away with this competition with three world records. I'm over the moon, he said. I managed to get the technique right on the day, and I couldn't believe it when the arrow went so far. Zach, who enjoyed watching Robin Hood films as a child, took up archery at the age of six after trying it at a fair. He became the youngest member of a local club and got into the county team at the age of seven and the East Midlands team two two years later when he was just nine. He initially started with target shooting but was later introduced to flight archery, which is based on the distance and arrow travels. When I first began, I was the youngest in my club and I found it very difficult as I was quite small and the bow was happy. (laughs) And the bow was heavy, said Zach from Corby Northants. Northants. But I really enjoyed archery and began training a lot, so I got used to it. Zach now trains at Welland Valley Archery Club every night for three hours, firing a thousand arrows each session. One of my granddad's friends does flight archery and took me to a competition. I tried it and quite liked it, he added. It involves a lot of hand-eye coordination and you do, and you need strength to draw the bow. And this is from an insert from a little infographic they have uh, on Target. 
Uh, arrows leave the bow at around 136 miles per hour, 200 feet per second. Shot at an angle just under 45 degrees to counter the slowing effect of friction through the air and gravity and for symmetrical sight and for a symmetrical flight path. 500-meter record equivalent to the length of 50 Routemaster London buses. The bow was 5.5 feet. Construction aluminum handle, two carbon limbs form a D-shape. Weighs 5 pounds and the pulling weight 35 pounds. Uh, back to the article. You need to be committed to train, but unfortunately you can't practice long distances as you can only shoot that far in airfields. The world record comes weeks after Zach injured himself falling down the stairs. I fell down a flight of stairs and I thought I had broken my back, but I came through it and I'm now I'm fine, he said. His grandfather, Charles Wilson, who lives near, nearby in Corby, who also does flight archery, said he was quite proud. He did it brilliantly well. He totally destroyed the record, he said. Though flight archery is not an Olympic sport, Zach hopes to try for the 2016 Games in Rio de Janeiro in target shooting and is looking for a sponsorship. I'm quite small for my age, so my height is the biggest obstacle at the moment. I hope I'll be ready for the 2016 Games. Flight archery is the oldest type of archery and is and the only sort which does not involve a target is sometimes referred to as the Formula One of the sport. Competitors have to shoot arrows as far as they can and use a particular size and weight of bow, and the arrows are specifically designed to fly for long periods in the air. They fire 24-hour arrows and then have an hour to find them. If they are broken, they do not count. That's cool. It's like in a little bit of an adventure, too. They cost, it costs around 300 pounds for a set of 12 arrows, with each one taking 40 hours to make. Wow. The recursive bow is the only form of bow permitted in the Olympics. Zach is already keen to break his new record. I want to try to get past 600 meters. That'll be a really hard target to break. And it will take a lot of work, but I'll go for it, he added. So I hope, I hope Zach, uh, I wish him the best, hopefully... Zach Crawford, another podcast hero, he says, hey, you you can't, you know, he could probably, well, they say accuracy is not important for these guys, so I don't know if he could have hit it, but I don't know how far that freaking boat was, Uh, 500 meters, how far is that, 50 buses away, it might have been 50 bus lengths away, I don't know, but but cheers to Zach for, uh, you know, uh, breaking a record. And for freaking practice in three hours a night, okay? Oh, so when the crows arrive at Craster's Keep again, he says, oh, look, some frozen crows or something like that. And I started thinking about um, flash freezing, like uh, you hear about, you, you buy stuff at places and they say, oh, it's flat, flash frozen. And, I mean, you definitely notice because, like, the strawberries or the berries, they don't stick together. I don't eat shellfish, but... Uh, You know, they see the shrimp, they don't stick together. They're flash frozen. And I was like, oh, wow. I mean, I know it's been around for a little bit. And you say, oh, well, it's, uh," and you see or hear people say, uh, we have uh, vegetables or fruit flash frozen is just as good as fresh, possibly more healthy. And then I'm like, okay, I don't want to get into one of these nutritionist debates here. And I, you know, I don't need you dropping any pseudoscience on me. Um, 
But I think we can all agree it's probably more healthy than canned, but that would be my own, you know, fake science bias about canned wax beans. So, or maybe just not fake science, more like repulsion. So, uh, so then I was like looking up stuff about uh, flash freezing, right? So I was like, oh yeah, we'll talk about this, that, this episode. You know, I was like, oh wait, I don't watch any of those, um, Discovery Channel shows, but I know there's like uh, ice uh, fishermen or something, and I'm like, Do they, don't they have like their own flash freezing? Like those fishing ships are like a like a total operation. So this is gonna be cool. And then, so I start researching stuff. This is, a, you know, I, I say this sometimes, and I mean it. Though it's like, what a wonderful little jaunt I went on down the flash frozen lane because then I found this friggin' article. It was actually linked to from uh, Wikipedia. It's from uh, 1930, September 1930, Popular Science Monthly. Now it's over at Google Books. So, uh, and it's written by uh, John Chaplin Hilder. So 1930 plus 70 is 2000. 84 years ago, 85 years ago, 84 and a half years ago. And I'm going to read you this because it's just so it's like, okay, whoa, buddy. Get get a hold of your pseudoscience because this stuff's pretty old. All right, from the article, Clarence B. Birdseye, that's I said it, whose method of quick freezing foods is explained in this article is a New Englander. For some years, he was in the service of the United States Biological Survey. Later, he lived in Labrador, studying the ways of foxes and fish. While there, he conceived the idea of developing an artificial quick-freezing process. On his return to the United States, he organized a small company and succeeded in placing quick-frozen fish on the market. But due to lack of capital, his company failed. Today, financed by one of the world's biggest food concerns, he's... He and his process are about, about to come into their own. Steaks, chops, roasts, chickens, and ducks, fish, oyster, clams, peas, spinach, cherries, raspberries, and many other foods can now be bought wrapped in transparent packages, neatly boxed, and frozen hard as marble. These products are said to be in every way equal in taste, texture, and appearance to the fresh-caught, fresh-dressed, fresh-picked kind. Don't get fresh with me. Furthermore... Being boned and trimmed, washed and sterilized before packing, they come to you ready for cooking, cleaner and more completely edible and wasteless than their fresh counterparts. Well, somebody else wasted it for you. Scientific quick freezing at Arctic temperatures has sealed their natural flavors and their natural juices. Off the coast of Labrador, some years ago, a biologist named Clarence Birdseye was fishing through the ice. The temperature was around 40 degrees below zero. Each fish, as he took it from the water and threw it into a pile of snow, was rapidly frozen stiff. There was nothing unusual about that. The unusual feature was later when when the fish were thawed out, many of them came back to life. Came to life, it says. I had it at the back. This phenomenon gave bird's eye to think, as they say in France. Maybe it says, I'm missing a word here, maybe. For he knew that ordinarily when a fish is frozen, the ice crystals that form in its body tear and bruise the tissues and destroy the cells which it is made up of. All flesh of fish and animals contains a large percentage of water. It is impossible to freeze water without producing ice crystals. 
Yet here were fish that had been frozen solid, but which gave no evidence that the destructive crystals had been formed inside them. A knowledge of crystal formation gave bird's eye the explanation. Here it is. The size of the crystals depends on the time allowed for them to form. Fish frozen by cold storage methods take from 10 to 48 hours to freeze solid. His fish exposed the air 40 below zero. Had been frozen through so quickly, the ice crystals formed in their cells had been too tiny to tear the cell walls. This meant, upon thawing, the flesh was absolutely the same as before freezing. With ordinary slow-frozen fish, the flesh is radically different from its original state. The fibers are compressed in bundles. The natural moisture squeezes out of the cells and cannot return because the cells are broken. And consequently, it drips out. Bird's eye realized that if he could invent a practical method of artificial quick freezing, he could make available to folks living hundreds of miles from the seashore frozen fish that would be in every way as desirable as a fresh. This he set out to do. After years, after years of experiment, he succeeded in evolving a process applicable not only to fish, but meats, vegetables, fruits, and other products. Quick freezing can be done in various ways. Bird's eye has no monopoly on the principle. The system of Dr. Hardin F. Taylor, which has been in successful operation for a couple of years, the Colbay processes and the Z processes in Europe are among the best-known methods. These differ chiefly in mechanical application of the basic principle. All, in one way or another, bring the product to be frozen, into indirect contact with an intensely cold refrigerant. One method is to place the food on a metal plant or tray, which is floated through containing the freezing fluid. Another method is to place it on an endless metal belt, the underside of which is sprayed with the refrigerant. These and similar method, with these and similar methods, only one side of the food is given contact with the freezing agent. If the product product so treated as thin, such as a fillet of fish or lamb chop, the result is satisfactory. Thicker products, such as whole fowl, whole fish, are placed in hermetically sealed containers, which are lowered right into the frigid fluid. Flesh products, when frozen, pass through what is termed a zone of maximum crystallization. The zone of maximum crystallization. This lies between the temperatures of 31 and 25 degrees Fahrenheit. It is while foods are between these temperatures, the bulk of their water content forms crystals. The object of quick freezing is to rush products through this crystal forming zone as swiftly as possible. A two-inch paddock package of haddock fillets frozen by the old method of exposing them to cold air will take, say, 10 hours to freeze solid. During six of those 10 hours, the fish will be passing through the zone of maximum crystallization. In other words, it'll take six hours for it to reach a temperature of 25 degrees, at which point the enlargement of individual crystals practically ceases. By, by contrast, an identical two-inch package of fish can be frozen solid by the quick-freezing process in one hour and a half. Instead of six hours, it will take only 25 minutes to chill it through to 25 degrees. Quick-freezing rushes it through the zone of crystallization four times, 14 times as fast as the old method. The time required for complete quick freezing depends naturally on the thickness and physical characteristics of the foodstuff treated. Obviously, it would take longer to quick freeze a six-pound cut of beef than a half-pound of fish. One of the most important problems to be solved 
in order to make quick freezing commercially practical was how to determine how long the various products need to be exposed to the cold and exactly what temperatures were best. A speed and temperature that would satisfactorily quick freeze one product might only sharp freeze another. Sharp freezing is the old method. Using solidified carbon dioxide or dry ice, which has a temperature of 109 degrees below zero, in a freezer designed for experimental work, five eighth eighth inch thick fish fillets have been quick frozen in from three to five minutes, and one inch pork chops in 10 to 12 minutes, and 150 pound pounds of one inch cuts in an hour. Vegetables and fruit differ more widely in their composition and structure than do meats and fish. Experiments are still being carried on with individual varieties in order to standardize a quick freezing technique adapted to each. The bird's eye process differs from the rest in one important aspect. Whereas with the others, the foods are frozen then wrapped, with his method they are wrapped and packaged before being frozen. In his system, the food sealed in transparent cellulose material and packaged in rectangular pasteboard cartons is passed through a freezing tunnel between two moving Monel metal belts, one below and one above. Both these belts are sprayed on the reverse side with calcium chloride brine at about 50 degrees below zero. The even pressure exerted by the belts prevents distortion of the packages by confining the expansion of the frozen products to the limits of the package walls. They come out of the machine like so many bricks. Several advantages are claimed for the scheme of wrapping before freezing. Oh, I missed part, part of this got cut off, but it says cold storage processes, desiccation or drying out through surface evaporation of moisture takes place in proportion to the surface area of the product exposed to the atmosphere. The oxidation of fats, called freezer burn, resulting in a change of color and souring is most rapid on exposed cut surfaces. The elusive quality we call flavor often was lost in the past largely because of evaporation of volatile substances, oxidation of fats, and the absorption of all odors, reducing the area exposed or eliminating it almost entirely by covering the product with a close-fitting, airtight, moisture-proof wrapping, automatically reduces the possibility of oxidation and evaporation, at the same time keeping out contaminating odors. Another item is the economy of shipping and storage space. Take, for example, a steak. In its unfrozen state, uh, steak is fairly yielding and flexible. It can be so manipulated as to fit in a regular rectangular cardboard carton. The same steak after freezing would be hard as a rock and impossible to bend. Plainly, 10 steaks in a cardboard box of identical size will be easier to pack for shipment and easier to store in given space than 10 steaks of varying sizes and shapes. Frozen, unwrapped. So that's a little bit about the bird's eye method. Wow. I mean, wow. It's just a world, such an interesting place. And uh, I'd love to, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. There's more here, so it'll be in the show notes. Thanks so much. So there's this great song in this episode called The Bear and the Maiden Fair. One of the things that adds to the, I don't know, the level of filmmaking or what do you know? 
It's one of the things that adds to the depth of storytelling, I think, of both uh, the novels and the TV shows, having all this stuff. So The Bear and the Maiden Fair from the Game of Thrones wiki. It's a song, a popular song in Westeros. Uh, season 3, Locke and his men sing it as they make their way to Hall after capturing Jamie and Brienne. And then it's sung at the end of the episode by the Hold Steady. And here's the lyrics. And it's a great, it's a hilarious song. A bear, there was a bear, a bear. All black and brown and covered in hair. Three boys, a goat, and a dancing bear. They danced and spun right to the fair. Oh, sweet she was and pure and fair, the maid with honey up in her hair. He smelled her on the summer air, the maid with honey up in her hair. From there to here, from here to there, all black and brown and covered in hair. He smelled that girl on the summer air, the bear, the bear, the maiden fair. Oh, I'm a maid, I'm pure and fair, I'll never dance with a hairy bear. I called a night, but you're a bear. All black and brown and covered in hair. He lifted her high in the air. He sniffed and roared and he smelled her there. She kicked and wailed the maid so fair when he licked the honey from her hair. From there to here, from here to there. All black and brown and covered in hair. He smelled that girl in the summer air. The bear, the bear, the maiden fair. And the bear, the bear, the maiden fair. And the bear, the bear. She sighed and she squealed and she kicked the air. And then she sang, my bear, my bear so fair. And off they went into the summer air, the bear, the bear, and the maiden fair. From there to here, from here to there, all black and brown and covered in hair. He smelled that girl in the summer air, the bear, the bear, the maiden fair. And the bear, the bear, the maiden fair. And the bear, the bear, the maiden fair. And the bear, the bear. Behind the scenes... Uh, Game of Thrones producers enlisted indie rock band The Hold Steady to record a live uh, to record a version of the song with music composed by Raymond Jawadi. Uh, the cover of the song plays during the end credits for season three, episode three, Walk of Punishment. The Hold Steady were enthusiastic about the project because the guitarist Tad Kubler knew Peter Dinklage. They used to play pool together in Brooklyn, Brooklyn. They used to play pool together in Brooklyn, and he had become a fan of the show through the association. Producers Benioff and Weiss received the finished version of the song while working with George R. R. Martin in Santa Fe, and the three of them drank tequila while listening to the song. The producers were so pleased by the final song that they offered Kubler a cameo appearance in a future season of the show. Gary Lightbody, the lead singer of the northern Irish rock band Snow Patrol, sings the song in the episode Walk of Punishment itself. In a cameo appearance, he plays a Bolton soldier in Locke's group who's taken Jamie and Brienne of Tarth prisoner. So that's a bear, bear, maiden fair. Okay, w- another thing about this episode is that giant statue that's uh, above the... Uh that with the Khaleesi, you see this big statue. I was like, what is that? What, uh, what the hell is that giant winged gold thing? And, and it turns out it's a harpy. Uh, so I went over to Game of Thrones wiki. Harpies are creatures whose likeness is used as the sig- sigil of the Giscari Empire, as well as the cities of Slaver Bay, whose Giscari culture survives to this day. They are apparently mythological as no living harpies have been reported in centuries. 
Harpies are shown as having the face and torso of a woman and the wings of a bird. Uh, harpies are prominently shown in the city of Astapor on Slaver's Bay, and it's also on the flag and uh, dominates the skyline of the Yunkai. What's the Giscari Empire, you might ask? That's what I ask next. It was one of the oldest civilizations in the known world, which ruled much of the continent of Esso, centered around the present-day region of Slaver's Bay. The Giscari Empire was flourishing, building massive pyramids thousands of years before the rise of the Valerian Freehold, uh, when Valerians were only humble shepherds. Its symbol was a harpy, a woman's head and torso, bat wings, clawed eagle legs, and a scorpion's tail. 5,000 years ago, when the Valerians discovered a master of dragons and began to conquer outwards, the Giscari Empire sought to put a halt to their expansion. The two great rivals vied to be the dominant power in Essos. And in a series of five great wars, uh, the massive Giscari legions marked, marched against the Valerians, but each time they were defeated by the Valerian dragons. Much of the fighting took place in and around the Valerian Peninsula, which would be later become known as Slaver's Bay. The Valerians finally defeated the Giscari Empire when their armies and dragons attacked the capital city of Geese. The buildings and streets were burned to ash. The Valerians sold the earth with salt so nothing would grow again. 5,000 years later, old Geese is still in ruin. The Valerians conquered the surviving Giscari people as well as their outlying city colonies throughout the region, including Astapor, Yunkai, and Marine. For the next 5,000 years, the Gastari people were ruled by the Valerian Freehold. Indeed, very few Gascari survived the destruction of the empire and combined with 5,000 years of intermingling with other conquered peoples that the Valerians incorporated in their colonies. The bloodline of the Gascari empire actually runs very thin in modern-day Slaver's Bay. However, after the doom of Valeria 400 years ago, the local Gascari cities east of the Gulf of Grief reasserted their independence during the chaotic civil wars known as a century of blood with a handful of aristocrats establishing great wealth and power by ruthlessly, by ruthlessly exploiting a vast slave population to the point that the entire geographical region became known as Slaver's Bay. The city of New Geese was formed on an island further south of the bay, the new ruling estates of the slaver cities fashioned new titles for themselves, the good masters of Astapor, the wise masters of Yunkai, and the great masters of Marine. Despite being separated from the Giscari Empire by 5,000 years' worth of racial and cultural inter intermingling, the ruling elites of these slaver cities look back onto the past glories of the local empire as a way of reasserting their independence. Latching on to whatever cultural trappings and heritage had survived the centuries after they regained their independence. After they regained their independence, the slaver cities of the Astapor, Yunkai, and Marine also began using harpies on their flags, emulating the harpy symbol of the old Giscari Empire. Even in the present day, many aristocratic slavers from these cities think of the Giscari Empire as their empire. The original language of the Giscari Empire, now known as Old Giscari, when extinct, as the Valerians forced the subjects to speak the language of their conquerors. Old Giscari did influence a common variant of Low Valerian, which developed in Slaver's Bay. Mostly, mostly a few loanwords, such as Misa 
and a few grammatical structures, even after their independence. However, old Gascari had been a dead language for so long, the cities of Slaver Bay continued to speak a variant of Valerian. So that's just a little bit about uh, well, that statue led us on that trail. Uh, so during Podrick's uh, uh, losing his virginity before that happens, we hear the term Miranese not. And of course, I had to look it up. But then when I looked it up, it, it, it led to an interesting thing. So let's go through what I learned over at the Game of Thrones wiki. Miranese not. The Miranese not is a difficult perform. The Miranese not is a difficult to perform act of contortion or sexual gymnastics named after the city of Marine in Slaver's Bay. Kyla. Kayla? Kayla, a prostitute in King's Landing, is one of only four women in the known world who are able to perform a proper Miranese knot. History, Season 3. Tywin commissioned several prostitutes, including Kayla, to help Podrick lose his virginity. He commends her on her ability to perform the Miranese knot. But here's where it gets interesting. In the books, this is from in a song in the Song of Fire and Ice fandom, the Miranese Knot is a reference to the complex series of plot problems George R. R. Martin encountered while writing the fifth novel in the series, A Dance with Dragons, problems which delayed the novel for a considerable amount of time. The first three novels came out within two years of each other in ninety six, ninety eight, and two thousand, respectively. However, it took another 11 years for Martin to write the fourth and fifth books, A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, 2005-2011. Partially, this was because A Feast of Crows and A Dance with Dragons were originally one novel that grew so long, George R. R. Martin had to split them into two books. The events in both happened concurrently, but follow separate characters. Also in the last few years, Martin has had to take time away to focus on the TV series, However, the primary reason Martin gave for why writing on the combined feast dance novels took so long is because of what he called the Miranese knot. Liking it to a puzzle of a Gordian knot, Martin explained that he'd reached the midpoint of the story when all the characters who were together in the first novel, who subsequently became scattered across the world, were starting to be drawn back together by events and interacting again. Uh, possible small spoiler alert here. Certain major characters who had never had scenes together were also starting to meet for the first time as major storylines became reshuffled and started crossing with each other. Thus, the Miranese Knot was a struggle on how to properly reintegrate all these major characters, some of whom had never even met before, and how they would interact with each other. Just as Alexander the Great solved the problem of the Gordian Knot by cleaving it in two, Martin solved the problem by separating the story into two volumes, hence... Why a Feast for Crows and a Dance with De Dragon deal with concurrent events. So that's interesting. Miranese Knot goes from sex to the frustrations of writing. But all contortion, I mean a contortionist act. Or me, like speaking can be a contortionist act. And But sometimes my uh, uh, Miranese, Moranese uh, tongue does not become unknotted. Uh, Blackfish. I might have already covered this a while back, but it's like uh, his name's uh, Brian Brendan Tully. People have been calling this from Game of Thrones Wiki. People have been calling me Blackfish for so long they don't remember my real name. Brendan Tully, popularly called the Blackfish, is a recurring character in the third season. He's played by Clive Russell. So Brendan Tully is a knight and a member of the House. Tully is the youngest brother of Lord Huster Tully and the uncle of Caitlin. 
Lisa, Lisa and Edmure Tully. Uh, biography background, Brendan Tully is a younger brother of Huster Tully. Huster was a lord of River Run and the head of House Tully. He's the uncle of Caitlin Stark. I always said that, aren't Brendan is a respected knight and a formidable battle commander who first distinguished himself in the War of the Nine Penny Kings nearly 40 years before the War of the Five Kings. He often argued with his older brother, Huster, particularly over the fact that Brendan never married. When Brendan returned home from the War of the Nine Penny Kings, Huster already arranged for him to marry Bethany Redwine of the wealthy and powerful House Redwine. Brendan refused this generous match, however, refusing to be told when and whom to marry. Huster was angry that Brendan would not do his duty to their family and enter into a marriage alliance to improve their fortunes, and said he was the black goat of the Tully herd. Brendan joked that, given the Tully sigil as a trout, it would be more fitting to say he was a black fish of the Tully school. The nickname stuck, and Sir Brendan is popularly known as the black fish ever since. Brendan even took to using the blackfish in his own personal heraldly, her, herald, heraldy, her, heraldy, like the standard Tully. It uses a red and blue background, but he swaps out the silver trout for a black one. Huster would attempt to compact, contact other arranged marriage alliances for Brendan over the years, many of them very promising matches, but Brendan turned them all down, which led to constant bickering between the two brothers throughout their lives. Despite his disagreements over his brother, over his refusal to marry, he's very devoted to his family. And if you want to, I mean, if you want a brother to bicker with, you know, why don't you get Stannis as a brother? You want trouble. So just be thankful. So another thing, another thing that came up was Stannis was, you know, very enamored with the Red Woman. And he seems almost also, as I said, like caught up in her black magic, which made me think of the song Black Magic Woman. And I was like, I, I know a little bit about, you know, I heard, I've heard that song. Santana sings it, right? Well, we're the black magic woman. So I looked it up. So we're going to do the lyrics, which I think are very fitting. And then we'll talk about the song. I think, I think it's pretty fitting with his current situation. It says, uh, got a black magic woman. Got a black magic woman. I've got a black magic woman. Got me so blind I can't see that she's a black magic woman. She's trying to make a devil out of me. Turn your back on me, baby. Turn your back on me, baby. Yes, turn your back on me, baby. Stop messing around with your tricks. Don't turn your back on me, baby. You might just pick up my magic sticks. Got your spell on me, baby. Got your spell on me, baby. Yes, you've got your spell on me, baby, turning my heart into stone. Well, in Stannis' defense, I think his heart was already stone before he met her. But uh, uh, anyway, you got yes, you got your spell on me, baby, turning my heart into stone. I need you so bad, magic woman, I can't leave you alone. And I kind of went along with that. Uh, I mean, it's not very fitting for this episode, but what about uh, the history of song? Actually, Black Magic Woman was not written by Santana. It was a song written by Peter Green that at first appeared as a Fleetwood Mac single in various countries in 1968, subsequently appearing in the 1969 Fleetwood Mac compilation 
album albums English Rose and The Pious Bird of Good Omen, as well as the vintage years. In 1970, it became a classic hint by Santana, as sung by Greg Rowley, reaching number four in the U.S. and Canadian charts after appearing on their Abaraxas album, becoming more closely associated with Santana than Fleetwood Mac. The 1 minute 49 instrumental at the end is called Gypsy Queen and was written by Hungarian jazz guitarist Gabor Zabo. It was omitted from 1974 Santana's Greatest Hits album, even though radio stations usually play Black Magic Woman and Gypsy Queen as one song. Uh, Fleetwood Mac version, although not as popular as Santana's arrangement two years later, Black Magic Woman nevertheless became a fairly popular blues rock hit, peaking at 37 in the UK singles chart. It was featured in Fleetwood Mac live set list list, even after Green had left the band when it was often sung by Danny Kerwin during concerts in the early 70s. It would form the basis for long mid-concert jams. The song would often be preceded by a band member reminding the audience of a Fleetwood Mac song before it became such a big hit for Santana. Uh, Structure. Set in the key of D minor, the verse follows a 12-bar chord progression alternating between D minor, A minor, G minor. The instrumentation consists of the instrumentation consists of vocals, two guitars, bass guitars and drums. So it is homophonic. The voice and the lead car, guitar taking the lead roles. The song is set in common time 4/4 four, four, with the rhythm, rhythm pausing on the upbeat and then breaking into a shuffle beat root chord jam after the final verse. The original recording by Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac featured guitars that were slightly below standard pitch, probably be, because being they were tuned to a piano or another guitar in the recording studio, very much reminiscent of the Rolling Stones. For most performances, it's played standard, although to create a performance more faithful to the original recording, the low E string could be turned down to D. The haunting D minor triad from the 17th fret is played out on one guitar, and a slide guitar playing over the same chord is faded over the top. Santana version uh, was recorded in 70, is a melody with a Gabor Zabo's 1966 Gypsy Queen, a mix of jazz, Hungarian folk, and Latin rhythms. The song became one of Santana's staples and one of their biggest hits, reaching number four, as we said. The album reached number one on the charts, quadruple platinum, in 86, partly because of Black Magic Woman. Structure of the song follows the same structure as Green's version, Common Time, D minor. I don't know what this means really, but um, a curious blend of blues, rock, jazz, 3-2, Afro-Cuban, Sun Clave, and Latin polyrhythms. Santana's arrangement added conga, timbales, and other percussion in addition to organ and piano to make complex polyrhythms that give the song a voodoo feel, uh, distinct from the original. The introduction of the song, which was adapted from Zabo's Gypsy Queen, consists of simple hammer-ons, pull-offs, and slides on the guitar and bass before moving into the introductory guitar solo of Black Magic Woman. After the introductory solo which follows the same chord progression as the verse. The song moves into an eight-bar piano solo on D minor and proceeds two verses, and proceeds two verses sung by keyboardist Greg Rowley. 
two verses of guitar solo, followed by two song verses, which are then sung, another verse before moving into a modified version of the Gypsy Queen section from the beginning of the song to the end piece. Rowley also performs a solo on the Hammond B3 organ in the middle of the song. There is also a single edit that runs for 315 on some radio versions. Piano solo is omitted and Gypsy Queen is sometimes omitted. Other longer versions have since been released, including one that runs for 856. So that's a little bit about Black Magic Woman. Uh, uh, my voice, Stannis, is uh, good luck, buddy. You know, good, good luck with that. So there's a bit of hubbub in this episode about the Battle of the Stone Mill. So I want to read up on that. The Battle of the Stone Mill, this is according to the Game of Thrones wiki, is a major engagement in the War of the Five Kings. It's recounted by Edmure Tully in his report to King Rob in Walk of Punishment. History. Uh, Prelude. Having decided to give up his stronghold at Harrenhal, Tywin Lannister and the bulk of the Lannister army marched southeast to King's Landing to engage the forces of Stannis Baratheon. Tywin left Sir Gregor Clegane the mountain in command of the garrison at Harrenhal, instructing him to ravage the countryside. The Stark under army under King Rob abandoned its invasion of the Westerlands, now fruitless since they lacked the strength to attack Casterly Rock, and marched east, east to besiege Harrenhal and flush out the mountain. However, upon the arrival, they discovered the mountain had fled. Gregor Clegane's forces seized command of the shore opposite Stone Mill. Edmure Tully, commanding Rob's forces at and around River Run, decided to engage the mountain's forces and seize the mill. The battle. Tactically, the battle was an amazing success, inflicting disproportionate losses on the Lannisters and forcing Gregor Clegane to retreat from the Red Fork of the Trident. They fell back on Casterly Rock. This removed them from being in immediate striking distance of River Run itself. Tywin's young nephews, Willem and Martin Lannister, were taken hostage in the battle. Aftermath, strategically, the battle was a significant blunder. Rob Stark's plan was to lure Gregor Clegane's forces further west into the Riverlands, where they could be surrounded and destroyed. Where they could be surrounded and destroyed, Edmure's attack instead allowed Clegane and his army to escape. So that's a little bit about the uh, Battle of River, uh, Battle of the Stone Mill. Good evening, good evening. This is uh, Prince Tommen, uh, Prince of Stories, uh, Lord of Tales, Tall Tales and Long Tales, like the wonderful tale of my best friend, Sir Pounce, the uh, greatest cat in 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 all of kingdoms of catdom and many lands and universes they've talked of cats and adventures, but uh, Sir Pounce is the one that is known among them all, and he is also known for having a friend, a friend so best. He is the best friend a cat could ever have, and his name is, is happens to be me, Sir Tommen, Sir Tommen. The sire of stories to be told, fictional tales about myself and Sapounce, and some are real, real adventures had by just a boy, a young boy, young man, and you know, trouble, you know, a young man who's had trouble, 
and who's pretty and against the pounce. And tonight I want you to put on your caps. Uh, and tonight I want you to put on your your dreaming caps. Now I don't know if in your your you know I'm unfamiliar. I'm a, I've traveled from many a long time ago in a galaxy far far away. He he said let's watch this. And then it said pew pew pew. I said oh no oh no I will not watch this. But I remember that part, and that's, I said, oh, I feel like that when I talk to you. So I don't know, but in the long galaxy I was in, we had uh, sleeping caps. We I called them dreaming caps. So I want you to put yours on because I'm aware now that you people don't have someone to come put your dreaming cap on for you and then say, no, no, adjust it again. No, 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 turn it. No, I do not like the tassels when they touch my elbow. Please move them. No, no. Oh, again. No, no. Take it back off, please. I, no, no, no. Uh, do I need to call my mother and tell her you're... you're uh, okay, then put the cap back on and turn it. Oh, can you... With one foot off the ground, because I don't... Thank you. Okay, now move the tassel. Very, so I know you people don't have like a, uh, I don't even know what the title of that dream cap capper. I guess a dream capper. Uh, you might not have access to that because in this kingdom they say, come here, I'm done in the bathroom. Podman, come here. Well, anyway, uh, put on your dreaming caps. He said, he said, keep moving. Uh, because I'm about to tell you a tale. Tonight I'm going to tell you the tale of Tom and Sapounce and the Mermen. Now, it was once upon a time, tales were told kingdom to kingdom, cats and water don't mix. Cats are afraid of water, which is true. Uh, and Sapounce says, why? Which means, you know, water... Why would a cat want to get wet? Which is easy to say. I already took a bath. I cleaned myself. I'm clean, very, very clean, fastidiously clean. So I don't need to be told to get wet. I, I, I don't need, you know, I don't need to be in water. I don't need to be cold. I don't like to be cold. I have very, I'm particular about my fur. But then one time, so Pounce and I, we happened to be walking along the beach. Uh, we happened, we, Sir Pounce and I happened to be walking on the beach. And uh, a clam uh, popped out of the ground, a giant clam. And I said, hey, hey, you guys, you can't be on this beach. This is my beach, you hear me? And Sir Pounce said, Riff. And I said, excuse me, as far as I know, uh, this beach is under the command. My grandfather could technically, uh, he does not own this beach, cause it, but he could take it. And, and, and uh, so uh, what are you talking about? And he said, I don't know. And he snapped, snapped at me, snapped at Sir Pounce, Sna snapped at me, snapped at Sir Pounce. And uh, I did not like that. And Sir Pounce said, Oof, okay. So about said the you're a clam, right? And the clam said you 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 bivalve to you. And Sapounce said, okay, so you're made of muscle. How do you, how do you get around? Like how would you get away if I just lifted you up like this? And so the clam was quite almost as bigger than so. Whoa, 
And he said, I'd try to, but, you know, what a, and he opened his mouth like he was going to get Sipons, and Sipons just turned him around. And had a, and Sipons said, oh, geez, I'd hate to see we walk away from the beach to these rocks here. What would you do then? Well, who's, whose rock would that be? Do you own that rock if you fell on that rock? But what about those birds above the head, above our heads? Do you own those birds? And the clam said to Sir Pounce, he said, hey, yeah, cut it out. I don't wanna... And Sir Pounce said, well, what, what's the meaning of this? Why are you so testy? We can't just walk on the beach. I got to be bothered by you. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just having a heck of a day, a heck of a week, a heck of a year. And Sipon said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, these uh, these mermen came and took all our pearls. And uh, Sipon said, well, that's strange. Uh, why? And he said, because they're incredibly valuable, and they're even more valuable to mermen because they, uh, they do stuff with them. I'm not sure what, but they do. And Sipon said, I've always wondered if you were aware the pearls were in your mouth or not, because wasn't it just sand? rubbing around in your mouth or something, and then it forms. And I was just curious, did you know that, oh, that's a pearl in my mouth and not a piece of big piece of sand or rock? And it's incredibly valuable. I was always, and he said, yeah, we're aware of it. And, it, it, you know, you people, I mean, his people, he pointed at me and said, well, excuse me, I mean, in general. He said, uh, yeah, you, you, he goes, they're really important to us on way levels you cannot possibly understand. And Sir Pounce said, uh, have you ever seen a cat around uh, catnip? And the clam said, I have. And he said, okay, I think I can understand. And the clam said, well, I, said, well, I don't know how, see how they're related, but possibly. And Sir Pounce said, well, that's too bad about your uh, pearls. Uh, how many clams are affected? And the clam said, all, a, lot, a whole lot of us, a whole bed of us, we, you know, we're a clam, got a clam town out in the water there. And there's a bed of us, about a couple of thousands. And Sir Pounce said, well, uh, that's not right. What are mermen? And uh, Clem said, well, are you, you familiar with uh, what sea monkeys are? And uh, Sipon said, no. And he said, well, one day this boy, he goes, I have a sense. Because he goes, I, you know, I, I'm a clam vision, visionary. I have clam visions from other multiverses. And I've seen this young man you're with. Your name's to 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 Toby. Tommen. My name's Tommen. I told him. He said, uh, you know, uh, he's going to know what a sea monkey is one day. He'll be incredibly disappointed. He'll turn blue. Too old, you're too, you'll be too old to hold your breath, but you still will. Uh, and, but, but the picture, the picture on the sea monkey box. And me and Stepan just looked at him because we were incredibly confused. And he said, well, he goes on the box, there's these... Uh, Creatures called sea monkeys. And I said, like a monkey, a forest monkey that uh, uh, they have at an exotic zoo. He said, oh, well, more exotic than that, my friend. These are, uh, uh, you know, sentient creatures who live under the sea in a great kingdom. And uh, they're, they're thieves, too. Great kingdom of thieves. Again, I don't know. If, and I said, yeah, I don't know if you call that great. And he said, exactly. 
He said, well, that's what the mermen look like. They're not sea monkeys. That's just a marketing term that I, you know, had a vision about. I wanted to share it with you. I said, well, I look forward to turning blue in the face. Then he said, well, don't, don't, you know, you, well, he goes, I guess you can't change that future. Maybe you can. But he says, I really, we want our pearls back. You know, what if someone stole the catnip from the cats and, and serpents? They do it all the time, man. Because we act so crazy, they take it or they lose it or we lose it. Or, you know, it's a once a year kind of thing. So, and he said, yeah, we don't want that for our pearls. Could you, could you guys get our pearls back? You seem like, uh, you seem like all right dudes. And Saban said, well, that would mean going under the sea. And he said, well, yeah, I didn't think you were that tough a cat to go under the sea. You're afraid of getting wet, huh? Saban said, I'm not afraid. I'm afraid of being inconvenienced. And he said, well, I can't offer you anything other than the undying love of clams everywhere. And, I, and then I said, I spoke up over Saban. I said, we'll do it. All the clams of the world will love me. And no one will try to snap at me when I walk on the beach. And he said, exactly. And I said, uh, and none of you will one day have a giant clam in my dream to come to come catch me. And he said, no, no, no. And you won't talk to me. And What about the dream I have where you are all laughing at me? All the clams are laughing at me. They're laughing and I swim along, and I'm also, I have a rhinoceros head, and I'm swimming along, and then there's just clams laughing at me nonstop as it's very upsetting. And then Sir Pounce and the clam were quiet there, and I said, oh, yeah, that, so we have a deal then. And the, he, the clam the clam said, you, you do have a deal. Can you get our pearls back? And I said, well, I don't know. Uh, what will we have to do uh, other than have Sir Pounce get wet? Uh, he said, you're going to have to go under the sea. But he goes, I know uh, the uh, goddess of uh, Kelpalina, Kelpalina. And I, I said, Kelpalina, the, the, the goddess of the kelp forest? And he said, exactly. He said, she will aid you in our quest. And I, he said, I can't guarantee you won't get wet, Sir Pounce, but I can guarantee you will, you know, go be able to swim under the sea. No one will laugh at you, except for maybe the sea monkeys, but they're quite, you know, you might laugh back at them. They, they, they you know, and I said, okay, well, it sounds like I think we got a deal here. And uh, so we'll go get your, so how do we meet with uh, Kelpalina? And he said, well, he goes, you just have to wait for the sun to set and sit here and, uh, you know, hang out with me. And so we hung out with him and he actually taught us this game uh, called uh, uh, Toss the Crab, it was called, where we would throw a crab and try to get into his mouth. And then he would try to clamp down on the crab and the crab said, why don't you, it was a small crab, a small crab and... And he said it tickled when the crab would try to bite him in the inside of his, uh, you know, bivalving. But yeah, so that's uh, the beginning of a tale where me and Sapounce will meet mermen, possibly, possibly. And uh, you, you will not be able to know whether it is made up or the parts about Kelp. There's a real Kelpalina, Kelpalina, goddess of the kelp forests. Mother, 
of the kelp forests, keeper of the kelp forests. When you pray to the great kelp in the sky and you say, thank you for all this kelp, I'm, you know, I, I'm beside myself with my love of kelp. You pray to, you pray to Kelpalina. And I know so many of you may not have been introduced to her, so I will be proud to do so next week. When we talk again, thank you for listening to myself, Tommen, and my best friend, Sabounce. Good night. Uh, uh, time prayer in, prayer and in. Crone, sweet, sweet crone, Miller Smith, Barky, Jester. I, hear, I didn't hear from you guys about Whiplash. I thought maybe, I don't know, I was like, well, yeah, you know, I haven't heard from them yet after, uh, I don't know, when I started getting a hold of you guys. I know there's been like 26 Snapcasts or something, but those started, so you figure minimum 30 weeks, min minimum 30 weeks, so that's... Over, uh, probably a year in the vicinity of a year to three quarters of a year for me, but I mean, for you, which isn't that much in a human's life, uh, and for you guys, I don't know if you're eternal flames or mostly Im immortals, another. So this happens when I start praying to you guys, and I realize, well, I don't want to make assumptions. I don't want to make an ass. They say this, gods. I don't know if you heard this one, actually. But, but down here, uh, you know, a lot of people are big on uh, not making assumptions, especially teachers. They don't like you making assumptions. Partner, romantic partners. And but those are the two most effect bosses, I guess, would be another one. Uh, people you're meeting somewhere. You say, don't make you, why'd you assume that? You made an ass out of you and me. Assume, A-S-S-U-M-E. You assumed, which means, you know, well, Crone said she'd be here at uh, high noon, and now it's four in the afternoon. Uh, but she never said she, well, I guess that's the thing. I was saying, well, you know, Whiplash was, for me, a powerful film. So I thought, God, but so anyway, guys, I don't know. I'm not here to, it's not about me. It's about you guys and me bringing you into my world. I can show you the world, gods, shining, shimmering, splendid. Well, actually, that'd be if I praying for, to try to see the world as shining. You know, I need to see things on the shining or shimmering or splendid or side. I'm not good at that, but anyway. Uh, I can show you where it's shining and shimmering. So tell me, gods and goddess, when did you last let your heart decide? This is my world. Don't you dare close your eyes, but you might, you're a god, so you might be able to see without them. Uh, rolling, tumbling, and ending. Gods, I don't have a magic carpet and not even a car to give you a ride. Hey, hey, gods, this is a song that's going off key. 
what I was going to tell you all about TV. What do you think? That's a song from a movie. I was, I was, I was, cause I've been, I mean, let's just cut to it, guys. What do you think about Better Call Saul? Episode Uno, Mi Uno and Mijo, gods. Um, those are the first two episodes of Better Call Saul. Uh, TV, especially in the Better Call Saul era, is a uh, new era. It's kind of like movies, but different. TV, you always watch it. Home, well, not always. A lot of times you watch it at home, God. Home's where I live. That's the thing I'm in front of when I'm watching it. That's rectangular uh, uh, thing. It looks like a window. It could be confused as a window. Uh, but you guys are gods, so you're like, oh, what is that, a magical window? And the magic is like uh, phosphorus, atoms being driven. Um, uh, some people, it's LED, light-emitting diodes. My TV has plasma gas, I believe in it. They stop, almost stopped making those gods. They pull out the uh, old uh, credit card, like, you know, Anyway, we don't want to get in a debate about TVs because you guys will have like, uh, oh, you're rewatching my TV. So you're set, gods. I got a plasma before they went extinct. So, but with, you know, who knows how long I'll keep it with you watching my house on Crone. That, that was a passive aggressive joke. Kind of like assuming. Anyway, so God's TV is the thing on that thing, on the window, win, window, magic window. And, uh, like movies for entertainment, education, enrichment, stories. So Better Call Saul is what we watched the last two nights. Was it Wednesday or Thursday? And I watched the first one. But we watched them. Uh, then, uh, so Better Call Saul, TV show about a man. This guy's clearly a man, um, not like a Whiplash where it was a boy becoming a man. This is a man. And we're not, we're not exactly sure what he's becoming, huh, God? So you're like, uh, okay, it opens. He's in this one place. Was that in black and white or was, that, was I in black? Was I was looking in black and white, This the open of the first episode, God's? Do you, do you know the difference between black and white colors? Barky, quick question. This might be a stereotype. Does the trees see in colors or do they see in black and white? No, no answer, of course, but that's a question I have. I was just curious. But so it's about this. The show's about uh, about a man named Saul. He's a lawyer. Um, I'm sure you guys know what lawyers are because, I mean, if you're smoting people, they'd probably be at the top of your list and they'd be like, well, you can't smote me because of uh, Section 456A of my belief system. This is no smoting clause, and uh, so you should smote that podcaster instead because, you know, but, you know, lawyers, there's good lawyers, there's bad lawyers, just like everything else. Um, and uh, so what was I saying? I mean, I'm sure lawyers have a lot of trouble sleeping, so they should check this podcast out because uh, it's a stressful job. So um, anyway, guys, so Saul, uh, so Saul, he's an attorney. And it starts out, he's doing something else. We won't spoil it for anybody. We're like, oh, what's going on with this guy? 
And then he's got, then holy moly, Michael McKean. Michael McKean. Is that how you say it, guys? McKean. What a, what a lovely surprise that was. I didn't know he was in the show. That was one surprise. Second episode, we get a couple. Uh, we get surprised the guy from Orphan Black is in, you know, we're like, hey, I, I liked that. I, at first, I had to ID, IMDB him, gods, because I said, I recognize that voice, but I can't figure out where it's from. And I kept seeing, it kept poking at me. I said, what are you saying? This guy's from something. And and I, I, I like him, but I can't figure out, well, I can't place my finger on it. I'm predisposed, um, you know, to giving this guy a chance. He so back to Saul guy. He's a guy. He's kind of on the. Uh, it's tough to tell if we're catching him on the upswing or the downswing, but he seems to be at some sort of. Uh, he's in a transition phase for sure. And he's got Michael McKean. Michael McKean. Um, and it's like, okay, what is it? I'm not clear. I'm pretty sure I'm clear on their relationship now. After two episodes, but I'm still, I'm like 97% sure. So I'm like, okay, wow, that's interesting. Like, uh, but you know, first, I, at first I was like, is this a mentor? Uh, well, I guess it still could be a mentor, you know, uh, you know, anyway, I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but, uh, it's, I guess guys, I'm kind of wasting your time. You, what'd you think of the show? I liked it. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I'm having trouble talking about it, guys, because I don't want to spoil it for anybody, right? But that's uh, so better call Saul. Let me know. I mean, I'm going to catch the rest of the season. I do wonder how many episodes are in the season. I don't know the answer to that. How much are they setting up versus how much is happening? Um, is, uh, you know, uh, and where is it going? And, uh, you know, we have recurring characters who are like, okay, when are they, when's this going to happen? When's this guy going to be? And there's a lot of funny jokes, a funny show. And uh, I don't I don't know, guys. I don't, I can't talk about it without spoiling it, so I don't want to say even good stuff because it's so new that a lot of people will have not caught it. It just came out, premiered uh, last week, maybe, I think it comes out, I think it's on Sunday, Monday nights or Sunday nights, uh, Mondays, Sunday and Monday was a premiere, double premiere guys. Very, um, uh, that's kind of unprecedented, a two night premiere. Uh, but, um, I don't know if sweeps week started, but I guess guys, if I'm going to be praying in, I might as well say some prayers. My question praying is what's the future of this TV medium, gods? Uh, you know, what used to be just broadcast over there. Linear, you had to watch it. What You had to watch the commercials, and the time-shifting went in. You, you can learn about it all, gods. Just conduct, you know, check Wikipedia. And then you could skip commercials, but you still had to watch stuff right on your TV. And then it became like, uh, oh, we'll watch it on our phone or our tablet, on the train. And, I mean, I don't want to uh, – I'm just thinking about it, guys. I was thinking about it this week because I was like – I didn't realize that Walking Dead started till after. And I was like, oh, we said Better Call Saul must be starting. And I had managed to catch uh, Better Call Saul in time to tape him to watch him towards the end of the week or DVR or whatever you want to call it. But I did not – like, I have to wait. Like, I, like I had to wait till we catch Walking Dead – 
uh, until after somebody said something to me. And I was like, they said, what could you do? And I said, what? I didn't even know that started. Um, so I'm just curious like this. So I do a podcast, gods. I don't know if you know about that, but I'm just wondering if TV, uh, it's weird to think like podcasting is like, a. Say it's lower on the tech side, much lower on the production side as far as effort goes in, but it's like it gets shot right to your um, your podcatcher is what they call it. And it's like, okay, I like this podcast. Just give it to me when it comes out. And you can tie a hind to do that with your DVR, but I'm just wondering if it's like, well, like Better Call Saul's on a channel. It's too complicated, guys. But it's like, do I want the channel or can I just get the Better Call Saul? Shoot that to me. I'll pay you this much money. Um, I don't know. It's a whole mess. If you guys could figure it out, gods, it's good because we got tons of choices, tons of quality stuff. And there's an old way of paying for it. And then there's like a new way. Hasn't got figured out. Right now, for me, I pay a, uh, a company for my internet and my cable. Then I pay for uh, my music, which you guys, for the playlists. Then I play, pay uh, a couple other companies that, you know, have TV shows and movies. Now, luckily, Crone, maybe I learned this from you. Maybe it was from the unrelenting Smith that, you know, so I'm good at calling these companies, the cable company, and say, hey, you know, give me, you know, this is, this is too much. Dial in your price. But it, now I'm having to do it a lot uh, more often. So I just wonder if I say, hey, I want this. Just give this to me. Oh, I don't know. Is it micropayments, gods? Is it some, I don't know. So if you figure it out for us and just say, Hey, we everybody's got to get paid so stuff gets made. It stays good quality. It's got to be good value, perceived value at least, perceived value, and uh, you know a win-win-win type situation, but not a win for like Megabucks Joe uh, for Megabucks dot corp, and then a lose for for the you know people making it and the people watching it. Or like, well, you're, you're the people making it's like you're kind of you're. We're still paying you. You're not losing, except we're gonna, you know, you know, win sustainable perceived value, high quality, all winners. Get on that, guys. Please, you know, let me know what you think of Better Call Saul. Or if you want something else to watch, we'd have to agree on it all. I think it's easier if I just decide. I don't have that much TV time with basketball. In this podcast, to be honest, I got Better Call Saul, Game of Thrones, and that's about all I got time for, Walking Dead. I don't know, guys. This hasn't been the most productive prayer, but I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, I'm a servant of my own ignorance, and I'm trying to turn that around. So thank you for your wisdom and guidance. Please fix the cable, internet uh, stuff, please. Thank you. Good night.